Hello, everybody. I want to wish you a warm welcome on this incredible day, this holy day of Purim. I wish you all a Purim Sameach, a happy and a Freilichen Purim. And I want to share with you some ideas to enhance this holy day by sharing with you what I believe to be one of the most incredible secrets encoded in the words of our sages. The holiday of Purim is one of the deepest, most spiritual, Kabbalistic days on the Jewish calendar. And disguised in the guise of a day of revelry and drunken debauchery. So let's try to get a glimpse at the depth of Purim. And I want to begin by pointing out some of the customs and, and laws of Purim. First of all, on Purim, we just read tonight from the Megillah. Megillus Esther, the scroll of Esther, the book of Esther tells the story, the Purim story. And we read it from a scroll. And I actually just purchased my own scroll as a thanks to Hashem, to God, for my recovery from COVID. And uh, I ordered it from Israel, from a friend of mine who's a sofer. He's a scribe. And he wrote it for me special, according to custom specifications. And he mailed it on last Sunday, I believe. And I got a message after he mailed it that said it would be arriving tomorrow, Friday, at noon. Which means I would not get to use it for Purim. And I spent a lot of money to have him write it for me so that I could have it for Purim and mail it out to me. And I spent a lot of money on the postage and the insurance to get it shipped to me. And I wasn't going to get in time for Purim. So I was kind of annoyed at him for not sending out earlier. And I was very disappointed this morning. I decided that I was going to forgive him because I knew if I asked my rabbi what I should do, he would say, just forgive him completely. Don't worry about the money and you'll use it next year. And so I decided to completely forgive him. And not only that, but I realized that there's a rule in Judaism that says in the Talmud that Machshava Tova HaKadosh Baruch Hu Lamaisa, that when a person has a good intention, right? There's an English saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. But the Torah actually says the opposite. The Torah says when a person has a good intention, when they want to do good, they want to do a good deed, and they don't end up performing it for whatever reason, it's God counts it as if you succeeded in doing the action. So I, I realized that I wanted so much to read and le and read to follow along in the Megillah from a kosher scroll this year, my own scroll. It's a it's a beautiful thing to to do and to have. It's not an obligation, but it's just a beautiful thing. And uh, there's a lot of meaning behind looking at the letters specifically, kabbalistic meaning. And uh, I wanted to do it. I spent the money to do it. I paid to have it shipped, and it didn't make it. So I had good intentions. So Hashem would count that as if I had it. And not only that, but Hashem would count it as if I had it done the mitzvah perfectly, as if it was a perfect scroll, the best ever. And uh, so I got very excited. And lo and behold, about a half hour after I had that prayer, I got a text that said it would be arriving today. So I got my first Megillah scroll. So we read from the Megillah on Purim, and there's some interesting laws that we should know about reading the Megillah. It has to be read from a kosher scroll. It has to be read in order, and you cannot miss a single word. And that's very important. We'll explain why shortly. Second mitzvah of the day is we've been handing out gift packages called Meshloach Manos, Shalach Manos, which is gifts, food gifts to friends, Ishlerehu, from one friend to another. And uh, that mitzvah start is in daytime tomorrow, but since it's a very short day tomorrow because it's Shabbos after uh uh, in the in the evening, so people are a lot of people are giving the gifts out earlier, even though it's not really the mitzvah. It's still a wonderful thing to do to make people feel good, and that's giving two items of food to a friend. Then there's a mitzvah of matanos evionim, giving charity, and specifically enough for a poor person to afford two meals. And um, so we're doing that also. Everyone's collecting for different causes and different different charities on the day of Purim. It's usually a big day when it's not COVID for yeshivas to go around, 
Jewish schools and collect a lot of money. People literally open up their houses to anyone that knocks on the door and give away thousands of dollars. And uh, there's a law that anyone who sticks out their hand, you should give them. Whereas on a regular day, you should make sure the person has some sort of credentials. You don't want to give away money to someone who might not really be worthy. But on Purim, you give to every single person that asks something. And then we're going to tomorrow have a huge meal, Purim Suda. And part of that meal is the mitzvah of getting drunk. There's a mitzvah to drink, Adlo Yada, until you no longer know the difference between Baruch Mordechai or Haman. Blessed is Mordechai, who's the hero of the Purim story, versus cursed is Haman, who's the bad guy. And you should, that's how drunk you're supposed to get on Purim. And that is quite puzzling because really, according to Judaism, you're not supposed to get drunk on a regular basis. You know, people have a few shots on Shabbos, but to get drunk, especially the point that you don't know the difference between good and bad, that's a little bit antithetical to Judaism. So we have to understand that. And we mentioned Haman, the bad guy of the forum story, and we'll summarize the story in a second. Whenever his name is read, it's mentioned in the Megillah, so everyone makes a lot of noise. And there's these these groggers. It's called a grogger. It's like a noisemaker. It's like a kind of like imagine like a flag made out of wood that's on like little hinges. So when you spin it around, it just makes a lot of noise. So that's that's a grogger, and that also has kabbalistic meaning. We'll try to explain that also tonight. Then a few more points to mention. We on Purim, we also have a custom of wearing masks, of getting dressed up. And nowadays, a lot of people wear funny clothes and costumes. I'm usually a pirate almost every year because I go into my wife's closet and just throw throw on random scarves all over my on my head and around my waist, and I end up looking like a pirate almost every year. So I'll be doing that probably tomorrow. So, that, but traditionally, it's a the the custom is actually to wear masks. So, what's the significance of Masks and finally, one food that we eat on Purim that's interesting is hamantashen. Hamantashen, uh, for those of you who learned about it in Hebrew school, is a triangle cookie filled with jelly or chocolate or something sweet. And uh, we were told as kids that it represents Haman's hat, but it actually has kabbalistic meaning, and we'll explain the meaning of that as well. And there's one other food that's traditionally eaten on Purim, and that is kreplach, dumplings, pimeni. And uh, dough covering over meat and stuffed stuffed dough, and that's had in the soup, usually wontons. And we have to also explain that because nothing is coincidence. Any tradition in Judaism has deep meaning. So, if I were to ask you, what is the holiest day of the year? Well, you would probably tell me Yom Kippur. And uh, traditionally speaking, Yom Kippur is known as the most holiest day in Judaism, the Jewish calendar, the Day of Atonement, a day when we fast, we disconnect from physicality, and we confess and try to transform ourselves from all the things that we did wrong. It's a day of pure spirituality, of connection to God, and we achieve complete purification. Yet, according to Kabbalah, there's a day that's actually holier than Yom Kippur. Do you know what day that is? Today. Purim. Why? Because the letter kaf, the sound ka in Hebrew, the prefix kaf means like. So if you look in the Torah, the way the Torah refers to Yom Kippur is Yom Kippurim. And you can translate that as the day that's like Purim. Now, of course, Purim took place many, many years, hundreds, if not thousands, thousands of years after the Torah was written. Yet, according to the Kabbalists, you can learn, uh, and according to the Talmud also, you can learn meanings, hidden meanings inside words of future events inside the Torah. So the Zohar explains that Yom Kippur is the day that's like Purim. And the Hasidic commentaries explain if Yom Kippur is like Purim, that means Purim is much greater. And it says in the in the Zohar book of Kabbalah, Kabbalistic source book text says that you know, in the future Yom Kippur will be a day like Purim. 
that in the future time, the Messianic Center will actually eat and drink on Yom Kippur. So that's interesting. Additionally, it says in the Talmud that in the future, in the Messianic era, all the Jewish holidays will be discontinued. They'll all be canceled, or if not canceled, they will just pale, pale in significance, except for Purim. Purim will continue forever. Why? How could it be? What's so special about Purim? And how can we compare a day of craziness and drinking and eating and acting insane? You know, if you go into a synagogue on a Purim afternoon, people are dancing and singing and it's just it's like a it's like Mardi Gras in in Brazil. It's, that's what it's like. And uh, how could that be greater than Yom Kippur, which is a day of pure spirituality? We need to understand this. So let's begin our journey, if you're ready, to answer all of these questions to understand. And I'll just do a quick, quick review. Why we re what the significance of reading from the Megillah, not missing a single word, drinking on Purim, masks, hamantashen, giving charity, having uh, this, this festive meal, giving gifts to your friends, and the rave, waving the grogger, and how, how could it be that Purim is holier? Than Yom Kippur. So, what does the word Purim mean? The word Purim, actually, the Megillah explains, is a Persian word that means a a lottery. Because on Purim, and I'll run through the story quickly. Um, Haman, who was, or Haman, who was the arch uh, viceroy of the Persian Empire, convinces the emperor, Ahasuerus, in English I believe that's Circes, to annihilate all the Jews. And it was very significant because all the Jews in the world lived within the Persian Empire. So it was a total genocide of the Jewish people. And in order to choose the date for that annihilation, he made a lottery. And the month of Adar, which is this month in the Jewish calendar, came up. And so we call the holiday after that lottery. Now, that seems very strange. First of all, it's not such a significant part of the story. And second of all, uh, a lottery, the power of a lottery is randomness. And we know that in Judaism, nothing's random. So why are we calling this holiday a lottery? If you look at the story of the Megillah, you'll notice something very interesting. So. The Megillah begins, Ahasuerus has a party. He, uh, his wife refuses to come out and parade in front of the guests. He has her killed. Then he does a, uh, almost like a, lot of, a lottery, a beauty contest to find another queen. And he chooses this young Jewish girl named Esther, does not know that she's Jewish. Then, sometime later, he, uh, Haman decides he wants to kill all the Jews because of this. The head of the Jewish community, Mordechai, in Shushan, refuses to bow down to Haman. Haman decides he wants to kill all the Jews. And random twist of fate, it turns out that Haman, uh, Esther, pleads for the fate of her people to Ahasuerus, and Haman is hung on the gallows that he erected to hang Mordechai. So it's like a perfect twist of fate, uh, a real a real happy ending story. The Jews uh, lift, defend themselves against their enemies. The king supports them, and they end up defeating all of the people that wanted to kill them, and it became a holiday for all generations. But it, the question is, what's so significant? Um, you know, what if you notice the actual Megillah, if you read the Megillah, the scroll, you will notice there is a character who is missing, a very important Jewish character who is not present, not even once in the entire book of Esther. You know who that is? God. There is no mention of God in the entire Megillah. Now, for Jews, that's very unusual, right? The whole, our whole story, history, the Jewish history is really his story, God's story. We come out of Egypt, 10 plagues, miracles, the receiving of the Torah, thunder and lightning on Mount Sinai, miraculous entry into the land of Israel, and more again and again, miracle after miracle. And yet in the Purim story, there is not a single miraculous event. 
It's all just natural, random coincidences that come together for the good. So that happens to be incredibly significant. Because you see, Haman, the, the Megillah tells us, is a descendant from the tribe of Amalek. And Amalek, according to the Torah, is the arch enemy of the Jewish people. The Amalekite nation stands for the opposite of what Judaism stands for. And their mission is to destroy the Jews. We believe that in every generation, when anti-Semites stand up and try to eradicate Jews, as we've seen in Hitler, in uh, even in our own day, perhaps Iran, uh, in every generation, literally, uh, someone has stood up and in almost in a self-destructive way tried to destroy the Jews in an obsessive way. Hitler, towards the end of the war, uh, could have worked harder to fight against the Russians and the Allies. But instead, up until the last moment, he continued to send millions of Hungarian Jews to their death. In fact, Hitler's last dispatch, the final words of Hitler was that the war against the Jews must continue. So he literally, and the, the Torah explains that this tribe of Amalek, of whom it makes sense to say that Hitler was a member, were devoted to destroying the Jewish people, even if it meant their own destruction. And the uh, the Talmud actually gives uh, gives a metaphor that when the Jews came out of Egypt, they were they were hot, they were inspired. The world recognized that something special was happening, and Amalek waged war against us right after we came out of Egypt. And um, it's very interesting because. Uh, the Talmud says that it was like somebody who was, there was a very hot bath and one person decided to jump into the bath, even though he would be burned in order to cool it down for everybody else. So that was a Malik. They made it possible to cool down the inspiration of, of the Jewish people. So what does a Malik stand for? That they're the sworn enemy of the Jewish people. The numerical value of the word Amalek is the word safek and equals the numerical value of the word safek in Hebrew, which means doubt. Their job is to get us to doubt the existence of a creator. The, the word that the Torah uses to describe the attack of Amalek is the word karcha, which means happenstance or chance. Amalek's whole M.O., is that everything in the world is random coincidence. There is no master plan. And on that, by that token, the, the mission statement of the Jewish people is that everything that happens in your life is purposeful. There are no coincidences. There is nothing random in our life. So the Talmud asks a very unusual question. The Talmud in the tractate that talks about the Megillah, it's tractate Megillah, says, where is Haman alluded to in the Torah? And the reason that's a weird question is because Haman didn't exist at the time the Torah was written down. So really the, I, the question, the idea is that the Torah is the, has the roots of all of human history in it. So the question is, where are the roots of Haman in the Torah? And the Talmud answers from a verse in Genesis, when Adam and Eve ate from the tree, of good and evil, God says, Did you eat from the tree? Hamin ha'etz achalta. Did you eat from the tree? And the word from is hamin. And that is uh, the same word as hamin. So let's examine that story to understand what the root of hamin is. The story goes as follows Adam and Eve uh, go against God's master plan for for them and they end up eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and they realize they are naked they become embarrassed 
they hear God coming and they decide to hide from God. God says, where are you? And Adam said, and he says, did you, Adam says, we heard you coming and we were naked and we were embarrassed. And God says, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat? And essentially that's the story. And there's a, they, they, there's a curse. They get banished from the Garden of Eden, et cetera, et cetera. We all know the story. You can look it up if you want to know more about it. But the point that I want to focus on here is that this story is ridiculously ironic. What's so ironic about this story? So oftentimes people point out the fact that Adam and Eve are hiding from God. How can you hide from God? God is everywhere. God sees everything. God is omnipotent. God is omniscient, all-knowing. So it's silly to hide from God. But what's even more ironic is that when Adam and Eve hide from God, what is, how does God respond? He says, where are you? And this is, this is fantastic. What's happening is that Adam hides from God and God plays along. This is the beginning of human history as we know it. It's a cosmic game of hide and seek. God is, sees us hiding from him and he hides back. He's literally waiting for us to recognize that he's hiding and to try to find him. So that the just to give a little more depth to this concept, we talked about this before. The tree of knowledge of good and evil. The word knowledge in Hebrew means intimate connection. Adam knew Eve. Knowledge in the biblical sense means intimacy. That good and evil were intimately mixed up. When before Adam and Eve ate from the tree, they were purely spiritual. They had their skin was light. The Talmud explains. They were spiritual beings. They were souls who had bodies. Their identity was spiritual. And good and evil was clear. It was clear for them what the right thing to do was. Just like we know not to put our hand in fire, for them to do the wrong thing was obvious. When they ate from the tree, good and evil became mixed. It became confusing. Their spiritual existence became physical they began to identify with their body the talmud says their skin which before had been light which in hebrew is the word or starts with an olive became replaced with another hebrew word or with an ayin different letter which means flesh their skin was replaced of light was replaced with flesh they became physical beings who no longer identified with their soul. Now they're bodies who have souls, not souls who have bodies. And in that process, God became hidden from them. The Talmud continues and asks, where is Esther alluded to in the Torah? And the Talmud quotes a verse this time from Deuteronomy. I will surely hide my face on that day. God says sometime in the future there will be a time where I will be hidden from you so hidden that you won't even know that I'm hidden. And the word for hidden is, is hoster, aster. The word hester, hester panim, means the hidden face of God is related to the word Esther. So some say this is referring to a time like the Holocaust where we can't even imagine that there is a God in the world. So in fact, the word world in Hebrew, olam, also comes from a different word that means hidden, helim, because the world is a place designed specifically to hide God's existence. Why does God have to hide himself? Because before creation, God was one, absolute oneness. God was all there was. God specifically wanted to create a world of otherness, a world where he was hidden in order that other can exist. Because in oneness, there are no parts, there are no colors there is no other existence so god created a mask in order to hide himself the mask that god created in hebrew is one of the names of god elohim elohim which means forces or powers the word elohim is unique because in in the shema prayer where we state god's unity god's oneness 
hero Israel, the Lord our God, God is one, which is the quintessential mantra, pledge of allegiance of Judaism, says Hashem, yud Hey vav Hey, which means absolute existence. It's an acronym for what was, what is, what will be. Elokeinu is our God, but the word Elokeinu comes from the word Elohim, which means our gods. God, Hashem, yud Hey vav Hey, what was, what is, what will be, absolute existence, is one, Hashem Echad. But it's quite ironic. In the prayer, we're saying that God is one. We're also stating that gods are one. So what are these gods? It's almost, it's like we're acknowledging that there is such a thing as gods. So the answer is that the name Elohim is plural because it refers to the forces of nature that God created in order to hide himself. The name Elohim is the same numerical value as the word Hateva, which means nature. God created a world of nature, a world of cause and effect, a world of gravity, Big Bang. Post Everything post-Big Bang is, fo- is governed by the forces of nature that were uh, solidified in the f- instant second, according to modern science, after the Big Bang. The, the force of gravity, the, the big nuclear force, and time. And the universe as we know it runs according to laws. Laws of nature. Those laws hide God's existence because it's very easy to live in this world and say it's all just running on its own. We live in a world where our destiny is controlled by many forces. The force force of uh, the weather, of COVID illness, uh, cause and effect, medicine, science, the economy, love, war. We're at the mercy of many forces that control our destiny at all times. And Judaism says those forces are all one. There's one God controlling everything. We live in a world where God is almost completely hidden. And yet, at the same time, if we want to, we can see through his mask to recognize that there is a conductor conducting the symphony. There's a programmer who's programming nature. And sometimes, every once in a while, God suspends the laws of nature in order for us to get a glimpse that he's there. And a temporary suspension of the laws of nature is called a miracle. That's an open miracle. That's when the Jews left Egypt, 12, 10 plagues. That's, a, that's, that's an open miracle. There's also something called a hidden miracle, and that's much harder to see. Example of an open miracle is you're riding your, your bike down a uh, mountain pass, there's a, cl- uh, a wall on one side and the other side. There's an open drop, 1,000-foot drop. And uh, suddenly you turn the bend, and there's a 16-wheeler tr- wheeler truck coming up. It's a, it's a one-lane highway. You have no place to turn. You fall off the cliff, and you find yourself falling, falling, free-falling to your death. And suddenly you just stop midair. The next thing you know, you float back up to the top of the mountain and land on your bike as if nothing had ever happened. Now, if that happened to you, you would certainly be religious for at least a week. Now, you might attribute it to some other supernatural force, but you would certainly believe in something that defies the laws of nature because you experienced personally a cessation of the law of gravity. Now, take, for example, another scenario. Same mountain pass, same bike. You fall off the cliff, you're falling thousand feet, your your life flashes before your eyes, you say goodbye to everyone, you repent, and suddenly as you're about to hit the ground, just then there happens to be a truck carrying mattresses on the back of an open truck that's just passing through the the uh, cliff, the valley below, and you land right on one of those mattresses. You bounce right back up onto your feet, not a scratch, as if nothing happened. So in a case like that, you might say, oh my gosh, I believe in God, and you might go and uh, change your life. Or more likely, you'll probably shrug your shoulders and say, wow, what a coincidence. That's called a hidden miracle. A hidden miracle means we have a choice. We have a choice to see this as the hand of God, or we can shrug our shoulders and say, natural, 
the stars aligned. Things just worked out. I'll share with you two stories that I like to share um, on this topic. One is about a uh, a taxi driver in Jerusalem. And for anyone who's ever spent time in Israel, the transportation workers are really the uh, the inspiration of the country. They're the psychologists, the therapists, the uh, faith workers, the miracle worker. They 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 just they have a tremendous amount of faith. A lot of the taxi drivers and bus drivers. And this story was about a uh, taxi driver, probably of a Sephardi background. Oftentimes, they'll tell you they're not religious. Meanwhile, they wake up at four in the morning, go to synagogue, say the whole book of Psalms before praying, put on tefillin, learn Kabbalah and Talmud for an hour, and then go to work as a taxi driver. And they'll tell you, I'm not religious. Anilo dati. But the reality is, there's a lot of, uh, clearly they're, they're holding on a higher level than most of us, myself included. So one time there was a famous rabbi who was traveling with a taxi driver. The taxi driver said to the rabbi, Rabbi, I saw a miracle. The rabbi said, tell me what happened. He said, I was after the army, like many Israelis. He went to travel the world, take his mind off of the intensity of living in Israel. And he ended up in South America with a couple of friends. They were hiking in the Amazon. And one night they were camping. Suddenly they heard a blood-curdling cry in the middle of the night. They run out to find their friend with a snake, a boa constrictor, wrapped around his neck, 30-foot boa constrictor. And there's nothing they can do. They have no idea how to get the snake off their friend, and the snake is twisting and coiling tighter and tighter around their friend's neck. So they say to their friend, listen, they weren't religious, but they, you know, they, they grew up traditional in Israel. They, say, they tell their friends, say Shema. Say the Shema prayer, which is uh, the prayer that, right, the... the uh, the, the essence of essential Jewish prayer, quintessential Jew, Jewish prayer, which states God's oneness, which a person is supposed to say before they pass away. So this guy said the Shema. And just as he finished the Shema, Shema Yisrael, the snake uncoiled from his neck and crawled off into the jungle. They couldn't believe it. He said, the, the rabbi said, what, what happened after that? He said, my friend, the next day he was on the next plane back to Israel. He became fully religious, became, went to yeshiva, now he's a rabbi, and uh, that's the end of the story. And, you know, he, he, felt, he saw the hand of God. So the rabbi says, what about you? He said, what do you mean, what about me? He said, well, what about you? Why didn't you change your life? And the guy said, the tax driver said, no, rabbi, you don't understand. It was my friend's neck that the snake was wrapped around, not my neck. See, we can come face to face with an open miracle or a hidden miracle, and, it, and we could say, coincidence, doesn't have anything to do with me. Another amazing story, very similar that I heard. I heard this from a friend of mine whose cousin heard it from a bus driver. And uh, I met another person who also heard the story from the bus driver. So apparently this bus driver, when he sees Hasidic Jews, he likes to tell them the story. The bus driver said to my friend's cousin, I grew up in Minsk. Minsk was a very Hasidic town near Pinsk in Belarus. And he says, I was one of the first Jews in our town to stop being religious. And uh, every Shabbos, Friday evening, when the whole community went to synagogue, me and my friend used to go to the cemetery and smoke cigarettes. And one Friday night, we arrived in the cemetery, and we realized we forgot our matches. So we have to smoke our cigarettes. What are we going to do? It's our custom. Everyone else lights Shabbos candles, and we light up cigarettes. So what do we do? So my friend said, you know, in the cemetery, there's buried great, great Hasidic master, Rav Aaron Agalal of Karlin, the first Karlina Rebbe. And at his grave, there is always a candle burning. So let's go light our cigarettes from his grave. So the bus driver turns to his friend. He says, listen, smoking on Shabbos. That I can do. But to light my cigarette from the rabbi's grave, that's too much of a chutzpah. I can't do it. So his friend says, I'm going to do it. So he goes up to the rabbi's grave, puts the cigarette to his lips, bends down, lights the cigarette to the candle, and drops dead on the spot. The bus driver said his body was so bent over, they had to design a special coffin for him. So my friend's cousin heard the story. He said, wow. 
you know, that's a crazy, crazy story. That's like an open miracle. You know, what did you do after that happened? He said, what do you mean, what did I do? He said, well, what what did you do the next job is? He said, the next job is, oh, I got another friend to smoke with. We can come face to face with the miraculous and choose to shrug our shoulders and ignore it. That's the power of this world. My friend once pointed out an amazing thing, that the miracle of birth is so fantastic. It's so phenomenal. Anyone who studies science and understands how much has to work for a healthy child to be born, it's just unbelievable. And yet, my friend said, the greatest miracle, you know, for for many people, the study of science is the greatest proof of God's existence because the the intricate, the complexity of life, intricateness, intricacies, of of every detail of every organ is so incredible and so detailed and so complex one can easily look at it and say how could this have come about randomly and even the idea of evolution is to some myself included the greatest proof of god's existence that amino acids could come together and somehow life is formed which science doesn't still doesn't know how how it could be, but that, and then accident after accident, right, of genetic mutations, somehow a DNA strand is formed, and then more and more accidents that an organ is formed, and that organ had to be developed from so many simultaneous accidents that were all beneficial that helped the species survive, even before it was an organ, before it was a living being. It takes, I believe, one, one mutation to be, to work, is I think one to the negative ten. That's like one with a with with ten zeros after it chance of a genetic mutation being beneficial for species. And if you think for for any even a simple single celled sp- organism to develop had to have hundreds and hundreds of these mutations. So to me, that is an incredible proof of of the fact that there's an intelligence, there's a designer. So my friend said the miracle of birth, as incredible it is, the greatest miracle is that the doctor delivering the baby doesn't believe in God. The fact that God has hidden himself so much that is free will. You have the ability to see intelligence and design, or you have the ability to see, say it's all random. That's a malik. The force of a malik in the world is cooling off the power of the Jewish mission, which is to share with the world that there is a God, there's a creator, there's order, there's oneness, there's harmony. Amalek comes and says it's all random chaos. So when we drink on Purim, the reason we drink is to get to the point of recognizing that there is no good or evil in this world. Drink until you don't know the difference between Mordechai and Haman. Because even when things look evil, even something as horrible as a holocaust or a coronavirus, we believe is being guided by the hidden hand of God. And that's why we wear masks on Purim, to acknowledge that God is hiding from us and we're hiding back. To realize that we have to go and learn how to take off our mask and to see through the world mask, the mask of God's God's mask, the world mask of nature, to recognize that it's all an illusion that really He's behind everything, running the show. And that, I believe, is the message of why we eat hamantashen on Purim. Hamantashen is the same idea Kabbalistically as dumplings, kreplach, which is dough covering up something good, either meat or jelly. And the idea is, again, that the God is hidden in the world. We eat uh, dumplings three times a year. Jewish custom. One is on Purim. One is the day before Yom Kippur, Erev Yom Kippur, the eve of Yom Kippur, which is the meal of Yom Kippur, which represents the hiddenness of a hidden holiday. Because the day before Yom Kippur is the holiday, the festive part of Yom Kippur. And then we eat it on a day called Hashanah Rabbah, the last day of Sukkot which is also a hidden holiday because it's disguised as a regular day.
So that's the message of Hamantashim, that the goodness is hidden. We have to see deeper. We have to look through the world. And we shake Grager. We we spin this noisemaker whenever we mention Haman's name. So famous Hasidic master, the Bnei Sascher of Dinov, says, points out that Hanukkah and Purim are both rabbinic holidays. They're both the last, latest Jewish holidays, the most recent Jewish holidays, and neither of them are biblical, and they're both opposite holidays. Hanukkah is about open miracles, candles burning, Jews winning a miraculous war, and Purim is a hidden holiday where God is completely hidden, no mention of God, no miracles, all natural events. So he says that we do opposite things. We spin things on both holidays. On Hanukkah, we spin a dreidel, and on Purim, we spin a grager. And they're both opposites. Because on Hanukkah, the dreidel is spun from above. And on Purim, the, the grager is spun from below. And that represents the nature of these two holidays. That on Hanukkah, God's hand comes from above, miraculously reveals himself, and shakes up the events of history. But on Purim, his hand is below, is behind the scenes, shaking up the events. Where we can choose to see him or we can choose not to see him. And that's the greatness of Purim that Talmud says is even greater than the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai because Purim, we chose a relationship with God when we could have chosen to ignore him. We saw him without fireworks. We saw him in the normal, everyday, run-of-the-mill, natural order of life. And that is the greatest revelation. Because that's ultimately the goal, is to have a relationship with God in the natural world, in the physical world. And that's why we eat on Purim. We connect to God through the physical, through the world of nature. So the scroll we read on Purim is called Megillus Esther. As we mentioned, the word Esther also relates to the word Hester, which means hidden. And the word Megillah means a scroll. But it also means, in Hebrew, Megaleh means to reveal. So literally, the book we're reading is called Megillus Esther, to reveal the hidden. All of these ideas literally come together as one. It's a day of revealing the hidden essence of God. And finally, we give gifts to the poor and gifts to our friends because on a day like Purim, when we recognize the godliness, the divinity that's hidden within the world, if you really get that message, then you recognize the divinity that's connected to each, that connects you to each and every other person. That really, on the spiritual level, we're all one, we're all connected. And that's the idea of giving to another person. When you reach into your pocket and you give charity to another person, you're literally going against nature. Because nature says, I worked for it, it's mine. Spirituality says, no, I was given it as a gift so that I could share it with those who are less fortunate. So I want to conclude that this message of Purim, of taking off the mask, is really one of the deepest ideas that's incredibly personal because we're truly hiding from ourselves because God exists within us. Our soul is a piece of God. That's the greatest revelation of God in our life. And our lives have become, we've become masters at, of hiding, of hiding from ourselves. We block out our true selves with noise 24-7, whether it's our phones, music, iTunes, Netflix, drugs, alcohol, clubs, friends, Facebook friends. We are food we are literally distracted all the time. And yet, when you have a day to stop the noise, whether it's Shabbos or a fast day or a few minutes of meditation, to just connect, you realize that the greatest light, the greatest inspiration is within you. Adam hid because he was afraid of the truth of what he did and who he was. And we are often ashamed of who we've become, how far we are from living according to our true potential, the incredible, beautiful, shining, glimmering selves that we weren't once were as children has been blotted out, and we've learned to believe a message that we heard from others around us that we're not good enough, 
that we're somehow failures or losers. And that causes us to run, to run from who we really are. But when you stop the noise, you notice that there is just the most incredible connection to godliness. And I'll share with you just two two stories to bring out this point. Uh, On birthright, when I lead trips to Israel, we often do uh, desert meditation. We'll go out into the desert away from light civilization will spend about 10 five to 10 minutes sitting under the stars every person either in a circle or will branch out to be about you know 10 15 feet away from each other when we get back together people break down crying and it's like i'm always surprised why are you crying like what just happened you're just alone in the desert for five minutes and they they usually say it's their first time alone with themselves in years and there's so much pain that they've been running away from so sometimes that pain is the greatest opportunity to connect because pain is your best friend. Pain is there to warn to warn you and to tell you that something's not right. You know, depression, anxiety, these are all symptoms of a person who's not at peace with themselves. Something has to change in your life. Maybe you need to find greater purpose, more meaning, better relationships, better relationship with self. It's there to tell you that something's not healthy. Instead of medicating yourself, and I'm not against medication, at times it's very useful, but the first response should always be, what can I change in my life? Because pain is your best friend. If you didn't feel pain, we would burn our hands away uh, on the stove. We wouldn't. Uh, we would never realize that something's wrong. And it's the same thing with emotional pain, just like physical pain. So that's one example. I'll tell you another one very personal. When I was uh, about 16 years ago, I was living in Israel, I was studying there, and I was feeling at that moment in my life extremely lonely and uh, very much alone. And I wasn't, uh, I had not yet been dating, you know, to get married. I was studying in yeshiva to become a rabbi, and I um, was in my early 20s, and it was a Purim. In Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, it was actually a three-day Purim, which was an amazing, amazing experience. And I went on Saturday evening, the end of Shabbos, to a Hasidic synagogue where they go very, very late into Shabbos, after Shabbos ends, singing in the dark. And I was sitting there, and I again felt very alone. And I just started to, instead of running away from that loneliness, I decided to just feel it. And I just embraced the feeling of emptiness and loneliness and sadness that I had inside. And suddenly I felt filled with the greatest connection to God that I'd ever felt. And I was filled with such joy and such comfort. And I realized that that running from ourselves, running from the pain is really running from connection, running from intimacy and running from God who's right there with us in the pain. And, uh, and then I met I met my wife a few weeks later. So I feel like that experience was the experience I needed to learn to just connect and accept myself. That was what I had to go through in order to be ready to get married. So in our own lives, when things feel dark, when we feel alone, when things seem random and crazy and chaotic, try to look deeper underneath the darkness of the world to see that there is a conductor to the symphony and he's waiting for us to find him. He's been hiding for a long, long time and the world has moved on and forgotten that we have a father who is hiding from us. It's a game of hide and seek. And he imagined the greatest pain of a kid who's hiding from other kids and he has a great hiding place. And then he realizes that everyone just gave up and they just left. And that, that's what—that's our experience with the Creator. He's just waiting for us to find him, but so many of us have forgotten. And that, that verse that we quoted, that on that day I will certainly hide my face. Anuchi aster aster pana. It says hide twice. Aster, haster, aster. I will certainly hide in Hebrew. It means it emphasizes the word when you repeat the word twice. But the Baal Shem Tov, founder of the Hasidic movement, says no. It's talking about a time where there'll be a hiddenness within a hiddenness. God is hidden, that we know. But there'll be time in history where we don't even realize that he's hidden. 
we forget that there's even a God in the first place. And that's the times that we're living in now. So it says that on Purim, one is obligated to, to get drunk on, on Purim until they don't know the difference between Haman and Mordechai. But in uh, Haman, Mordechai and, uh, and Haman, it says in Hebrew, the word to get drunk on Purim could be also read to get drunk with Purim. The idea is to get so drunk on this idea that all there is is God. There is no good and evil in this world. All there is is God. The rest of the world drinks to escape. We drink to find ourselves. That's Purim. That's what Purim's all about. Not to get drunk on wine, to get drunk on the realization that all there is is God. The climax of Yom Kippur, the end, the very last moment of Yom Kippur, in the Ne'ilah service, where we close the gates of Yom Kippur as the sun sets, the very last thing we do is we cry out Shema Yisrael. Cry out Shema Yisrael, and then we cry out seven times, Hashem Hu Elohim. God is Elohim, the forces of nature. All there is is God. It takes us an entire day of fasting to reach that revelation on Yom Kippur. And on Purim, we start off on Purim recognizing that not by fasting, but through drinking and eating and giving and sharing and dancing, that all there is is God. That Hashem Hu Elohim, there is no nature. There is no world. All of this is a matrix designed to hide the fact that all there is is God. So I want to wish you all a beautiful Purim of connection, connection to yourself, connection to others, connection to God. That's the name of the game. Take a moment to just be. And the point of drinking is not to act crazy. It's not to get high. Right? Some people you know, on the, have, a, have a hallucinogenic experience. It's just to remove the inhibitions that prevent us from being real with ourselves and real with our feelings. Happy, happy Purim to you. And I hope we can all celebrate together many, many more times, hopefully soon in Jerusalem, as we see the coming of the Messianic era where Purim will be the holiday. It's the holiday that represents the journey of finding God in the darkness of this world, which is much, much greater than seeing him in open miracles. Thank you so much for listening.